If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to 1 Timothy, as we continue our way through this incredible pastoral epistle, I think we're like on week 15. There's only a couple more uh, to come as we have navigated our way through this incredible book. It's a lot of like an owner's manual for the church. So important for us here at King's Chapel at a time like this to really know how we're to act as the bride of Christ, the church of the living God. Let me tell you again, if uh, we were all in an airplane right now, um, you might hear the pilot's voice coming on. He might say to you, hey, ladies and gentlemen, you might notice that I've turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. Uh, We're going to be hitting some turbulence coming up here. Uh, There's some uh, air in front of us that uh, that might be a little bit of a rough ride. And so as a pastor, uh, as I prepare each Sunday, uh, I want to always give you God's word and the beauty and the totality, the best of my ability that I can. But let me just tell you, we're going to go into some deep waters, some beautiful waters. Uh, uh, we're going to probably struggle with some things today. Uh, some things might make us feel uncomfortable. Some things might make us scratch our heads. Uh, so let me just say, uh, proverbial, put on your spiritual seatbelts. Know that we're safe in God's nail-pierced hands, uh, but let us let the great physician do some great work on all of our, our hearts this morning. You have heard it said, money is the root of all evil. You have heard it said very authoritatively that money is the root of all evil. Many times it will be said with such authority, and they'll, they'll pull in the Bible, and they'll say, as the Bible says, money is the root of all evil. But that's not what the Bible says. So isn't it interesting? We've all heard it. We've all heard people say, hey, money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say that at all. Uh, Really, what the Bible says here in 1 Timothy is that the love of money is a root of evil or all kinds of evil. That is really what the Bible says. And some might say, well, it really isn't that kind of splitting hairs. I mean, didn't we really kind of have the gist of it, what you first said, how important it is that we get it right? I mean, all right, are you splitting hairs over a word here, a word there? Well, the Apostle Paul is talking to a young pastor, Pastor Timothy, and he is in a place called Ephesus. It's a Roman city. It's a very prominent Roman colony at this time. And there's some bad things that were happening in the church. And some really bad teachers had emerged and some really false uh, teachers with bad doctrine. And he is telling this young pastor, Pastor Timothy, you are to preach and teach. You are to exhort. You are to encourage. You are to be passionate about teaching sound doctrine. And you've got to be really careful of false teachers. Why? Well, false teachers, they have false teaching, also known as bad theology. Uh, how it's translated for us in the ESV is a strange doctrine. It's not right, and it's causing great damage in the church. As a matter of fact, this letter is told us by name, so people have walked away from the faith. And it says that some of the leaders that should be the elders of the church, they're going, and they're, they're going this wrong direction, and they're really bringing great harm to the church. Well, this was true of Paul and Timothy and the church in Ephesus under T- Timothy's leadership way back then. This is true of the church today. There's a lot of strange teaching out there. There's a lot of false teachers out there. There's a lot of people who will fly a flag saying this is Christianity, this is what the Bible teaches, and it goes well beyond splitting hairs. 
we got to get to the point of what does the Bible really teach? What is sound doctrine? And how important is that? It's interesting, for those of you who have journeyed with us through this book, uh, today's sermon might sound a little bit familiar. It's new ground, but it's ground that Paul started with in the very beginning of the letter. In the very beginning of the letter, Paul is going to say, hey, I want you to be on guard for false teachers, and I want you to be on guard for this strange doctrine. And he's going to now, as he closes the letter, he's, he's landing the plane, so to speak, he's going to come back. He's going to say, now remember what I told you. This is important stuff. And so we're going to pick up this, this uh, message, this teaching, and he's going to say again, beware. Beware of false teachers. Beware of strange doctrine. Why is this so important? Well, remember, the whole point of 1 Timothy is for the flourishing of the household of God. It's the flourishing of the church of the living God. It's for us to flourish. But it's more than just that. It's so the church can be properly run. But it's also so the world can be thoroughly won. We're here as the church. And we are here as the light of the world. And we are here as ambassadors of Christ. So the broken world knows the truth of the living God. So we got to make sure that we get this right. This isn't splitting hairs. This is so important. So what we're going to look at here is we're going to see four things. Teaching the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, how important that is. The foolish folly of false teachers. Man, do I love alliteration. The great gain of godliness with contentment. And then lastly, the evil root of the love of money. So we are going to pick up actually right where we left off last week in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Um, we're actually going to pick up in verse 2. At the very end of verse 2, if you look at your Bibles, if you have an ESV like I do, you'll see a break between 2 and 3 where they realize the second part of this verse in 2 should be included with the passage I'm going to read to you. We're going to read 2 Timothy 2b through verse 10. Let's be mindful. It's God's holy and errant word. It'll never lead us astray. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes to Timothy, Teach and urge these things. Maybe your translation says exhort these things. Or maybe preach and teach these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, and these we will be, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many, many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the Apostle Paul and through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit given this great instruction to the pastor Timothy in Ephesus. How much they needed it back then because of the false teachers and the false doctrine. But God, how much your church needs this teaching now. Because false teachers are still prevalent. False doctrine, strange doctrine is rampant. And God, we need the church, the bride of Christ, to stand boldly with truth, to not split hairs, but God, to know the truth that sets us free. The truth of Jesus, the truth of, of your word, the truth of the gospel, the truth that you've called us to live out, the truth that sets us free. So God, would you come and would you be the teacher uh, to all of us, and would you speak through a broken vessel like me? Oh, God, would you give us ears to hear your voice and minds to understand your word and hearts that would embrace your truth and feet that would walk in a manner of your name? God, the things that I say that are wrong or merely my opinion, may those things fall away and be forgotten quickly. But the things that are said are true and contain this, this sound doctrine, these, these sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you use those things to help us be more godly and more content? And we pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. The first thing we see that Paul is going to say, he's going to say it urgently. You've got you to teach. You've got to exhort these things. You've got to press them upon them. Teach and exhort. What is it? It's interesting the phrase he uses here. The sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. What are the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ? He's really t referring to this apostolic teaching that has emerged, that Jesus is the true Messiah. He's the way, the truth, and the life. That, that not just the words you read and read in your Bible, but all of God's word is God's word. All of it points to Jesus. And so make sure you're teaching the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to break this down for you and talk to you about two really important things. The sound words, and the word sound here, by the way, very interesting Greek word. It's for health. This, these, these words will give you health. They're going to give you uh, what your soul really needs. Um, it's going to be, these sound words are going to tell us about who the person of Jesus Christ is and what is the work of Jesus Christ. So important. You've got to know for sure who is the person of Christ Jesus and what is his work. Let's talk about the person of Jesus Christ. Only a fool will deny that there was a man named Jesus that walked the earth. I mean, everybody has basically come to the conclusion that there was a historic Jesus. There's just simply way too much evidence that will point to the reality that Jesus walked on earth. But who was that person? I mean, every time you write the date, no matter how they change to what it means, when you write 2021, you are affirming the reality that there was a man named Jesus that would have such an impact on the world that he would even change the calendar. Uh, but even more than that. But who do you say Jesus is? Who is that person of Jesus? That is the ultimate million-dollar question. Will religions will embrace Jesus. Religions will gladly throw out the name of Jesus. But who is the real person of Jesus? Isn't it interesting that our Bible will even tell us in James chapter 2, verse 19, that the demons themselves believe in Jesus, obviously. They say they believe in Jesus. It says the demons believe and they shudder. 
oh, they don't believe that leads to salvation. They believe that leads to them to terrifying of who this Jesus is. But who is the person of Jesus? Well, the Bible will tell us, reveal to us who this Jesus is, this person of Jesus, that Jesus is amazingly the actual eternal word of God, the actual eternal son of God, that this Jesus, the person of Jesus, is he is the creator of all things, that nothing was created that didn't get created through him, that this Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, he would suffer under Pontius Pilate, he would be crucified, dead, and buried, that he would experience the hell of the Father's wrath on the cross, that he would be dead for three days, but he would be resurrected by the power of the Spirit of God, that he would trample over our sin and death through his resurrection, that he would ascend into glory and promise to be with us again, that this Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he will come to judge the living and the dead, that this Jesus is the one who lives to intercede for us. That is what the Bible will teach us about who the person of Jesus is. And when you look at the Bible telling us about Jesus, it will say this Jesus in his person is fully God. Mystery, but he is, as Paul will tell us in the book of Colossians, he is in bodily form, the fullness of deity. He is fully God. It also say that he is fully man. Not just appearing to me man, not just kind of looking like man, but he became like us in every way. Tempted like us, took on a body like us. The only thing that was the big difference was is he was without sin. Jesus, fully God. Jesus, fully man. These are the sound words of Christ Jesus. It's for us to really know who is the person, fully son of God, son of man. But there's more than just a person. What is the work of Christ? Was he merely a prophet like the Muslims say, a prophet like Muhammad? Uh, was he just... Well, the firstborn of creation, like the Mormons say? Uh, was he not fully deity, like the Jehovah Witnesses say? What was the work of Jesus? What did he do? Well, it was through Jesus' righteous life that he came to live, that he fulfilled the law of God. Scripture reveals to us there's a God who is, and he's holy, and he's got some demands that are high because he's a holy God, that we have to fulfill those demands that he's so holy, he can't even look on our sinfulness, but he's so merciful and just. He's so merciful and kind, he's going to provide us his son. And his son is going to come as a man because a man has to fulfill the law, and he does it perfectly. So what's the work of Christ? To become a man, to fulfill the requirements of the law, so that the God's holiness can be met. But there's more. Jesus has an atoning death. He has to die a death that we deserve. What does he do on the cross? Why does he say it is finished? You know what he's doing on the cross? It's amazing. He's letting the wrath of God be poured out on him because God's just. God can't just wink at sin. He can't just pretend it doesn't happen. He can't just say, oh, it doesn't really matter. He's a holy God. So he had to take his son to be a sacrifice for you and me. The work of Christ is he lived the life we should have lived and we failed to. He died the death we deserved to die. And on that cross, he experienced that something that now by his grace, you and I will never have to experience. The hell of being separated from the God who is. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Couldn't even look at him. It is finished. What is finished? That the wrath of God is absorbed. Our sins have been paid. What good news? 
That is the work of Christ Jesus. And then Jesus' glorious resurrection from the death, from the dead, defeating sin and death. And because of who Jesus is in his person and who Jesus is in his work, Jesus is the only Savior of the world. He's not a Savior of the world. He's not a way. So when we see those very nice moral people, uh, the Mormons, we've got to realize they deny the deity of Christ Jesus. And when we see people who often ring our doorbells, uh, Jehovah Witnesses, they also deny the deity of Jesus. And when we interact with the Muslims in the world, they will say that he isn't really fully God. He's like Muhammad. He was a prophet. Yeah, yeah, we'll give you Mary, but it wasn't that virgin thing. And we look at all of the religions of the world, they will deny that he is the way, the truth, and the life. They will deny that it's not really, you're not really saved by him. You're saved by what you do or by being religious or by following this or that. So listen, this is so important. Paul is telling Timothy, you got to get these sound words of Jesus. All right? Because this is, this is his person and this is his work. And all the other world may deny it. C.S. Lewis, uh, this great English writer, thinker, um, he, he at one time was not a believer, atheist, that would come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. And he says this phrase, and many of you know this, it's so good. He says, well, about Jesus, he's one of three things. He's a liar, because he claimed to be God, or he's a lunatic, because lunatics claim to be God, David Koresh, Jim Jones. I mean, those are lunatics. Or he's Lord. He is who he says he is. Which one is it? We can't say that he's just a good teacher if he's not Lord, right? Because he lied to us. And liars aren't people to follow. And you certainly don't want to follow a lunatic. Is he Lord? So isn't it amazing what she says, the sound words of our Lord Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. That, my friends, is an amazing statement. He is Lord. He is Jesus. He is the anointed Messiah. Those are the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. That and that alone accords with godliness. True teaching about Jesus, it's sound, it's healthy. True teachings of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ will always lead us to godliness. They'll lead us to become more like him. Christ-likeness is godliness. He makes us a new creation in Christ. He makes us new and to become more like him. That is godliness. Well, the foolish folly of false teachers. Here's what they did. The foolish folly of false teachers. False teachers deviate from the faith, or they deviate from the gospel. I love the way that they're described. False teachers are two things, arrogant and ignorant. And what a terrible combination. If you ever know a preacher or a teacher who is arrogant and ignorant, run for the hills, right? Uh, they're arrogant. They're puffed up with conceit, it says here. They're, they're supposedly godly teachers, but let me tell you, a true godly teacher is going to be humble. He's going to be like Paul. Paul, man, man, the guy was amazing. The stuff he knew, the way he studied the Old Testament and applied it now in Christ Jesus, the experience he had at Rome, uh, on the Damascus Road, incredible. Chief of sinners, humble. If you know of a preacher or a teacher who is arrogant, that's not godliness. Run from an arrogant preacher. He truly doesn't know the gospel because the gospel will drive you to your knees and make you realize 
but you're a whole lot worse than you think you are. But God's grace is a whole lot better. It's amazing. The gospel will shine light into the reality of our brokenness where we realize, man, I can't even love them the way I should. I can't love my neighbors. Every moment of my life, I'm just tripping and falling. But man, I'm loved. Ignorant. They understand nothing. You see, all Scripture, not just the New Testament, all the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, from into the beginning to amen, is about Jesus. When Jesus was resurrected, he took the, the, those in the upper room and goes, hey, we're going to go back to Moses, and we're going to go through the prophets, and we're going to go through the poets, and I'm going to point to you that it's all about me. All the promises find their yes in me. This is one story with one hero, with one Savior. It's all about Jesus And if they don't understand who Jesus is, they are ignorant and they know nothing. So it's not good enough that they could explain to you the beauties of the world and how it spins or or even some great depth of God's word. If they don't tell you who Jesus is, his word and work, they miss it. All right. So false teachers, they deviate from the faith. False teachers, they divide the church. They have an unhealthy, I love this, they have an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels. Do you know people like that? Don't want a preacher to having an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. Unhealthy here is sick. They're sick. It's patho- There's a pathology here. There's, there's some, something wrong. Their, teacher, their teaching promotes envy, which means it's the resentment of other people's gifts. Their teaching promotes dissension or strife, the spirit of competition and contention. Their teaching promotes slander, malicious uh, or false talks of others. Their teaching uh, promotes evil suspicion, not giving each other the benefit of doubt, not trusting one another. Their teaching promotes constant friction. It's the fruit of irritability. I love what it says, depraved minds will give you deprived teaching of truth. Teachers that divide the church. If you're behind a teacher, you hear of a teacher, you're reading a book, and they're dividing us, and they're dividing the world, and they're and they're, they're not unifying us in Christ Jesus, run, throw it away. Because why? False teachers divide the church. Jesus prayed at the end of his life. He says, I pray that we'll be one. I pray that every tribe, tongue, and nation of people are going to be one in Christ Jesus. That we'll be unified. That it's amazing that Knowles and Seminoles can be unified. How about how terrible the Knowles these days? That, that Republicans and Democrats, that in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, no other way, we're going to be unified. That, that Jew and Gentile, that all this world is going to become one in Christ Jesus. The gospel unifies us in Christ. The gospel brings us to the Father and makes us one in Christ. And the gospel makes us brothers and sisters with one another. We have differences, and those differences are going to irritate us sometimes. But the gospel unites. It doesn't divide. So false teachers divide the church. False teachers desire to be rich. (laughs) They imagine that godliness is meant for financial gain. I don't know where they get that. I scratch my head. How in the world can they think, I'm going to try to become religious, and I'm going to try to become better so I make more money? Hello, have you read the Bible? You know, you know, Jesus, who was rich, became poor? I mean, what in the world is going on here? And yet we have a history of false teachers who use ministry as a platform, as a means for financial gain. What do we call them? Hucksters. Hypocrites, wolves in sheep clothing, run from any preacher who wants worldly gain or who tells you that God's ultimate desire for you right now is worldly gain. 
you're reading the book, and it looks like it's religious, the guy talks a lot about Jesus, and he says, listen, God's desire for you is to be wealthy in this world. God's desire for you is to sow a seed, so that seed is going to go, and you're going to get great stuff. Throw the book away. Run from it. There's no good. All right? It's, it's, it's a false teaching. That's not true of what God says. He says, listen, I'm going to give you in Christ Jesus all the blessings of the heavenly realms. They're all ours. But anybody who desires to live a godly life, you're going to be persecuted. You want to follow me? It's going to be hard. And he's not promising us that the best life is now. It's not. It's coming when we see him face to face. Be careful of false teachers. They're going to, they're going to pray on our desire for the world's stuff and say it's really God's desire. And if you just had more faith, if you just clean up your act a little bit more, God just holding behind him, his back here, some better things. It's interesting, a, uh, a story I read preparing for this said of a, a wealthy man who went into church because he was so broken, he realized that all the world it was not satisfying his soul. So he goes into church longing to find something he doesn't have. And sadly, he walked into a church that was a health, wealth, and prosperity church. And the preacher stood up and said, listen, it's God's will for you. He wants to give you a Jaguar car. The guy says, I have a Jaguar car, and I'm miserable. That's what God can provide for me? A Jaguar car? That's not enough. I got one. It's not working. I mean, probably worked, but it wasn't working for his heart. Well, the great gain of godliness with contentment. That's it. That's where we land right here. The great gain of godliness with contentment. First of all, there's this mystery of godliness we've learned about in 1 Timothy 3.16. He says this, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. There's a mystery to this godliness. Watch this, that Jesus, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up to glory. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, 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 this is really confusing. There's a mystery of godliness, and then you give me this, like, weird poem about Jesus. What, what, what are you talking about? Well, what he's saying is this, is, The mystery of godliness is found in Christ Jesus. He is the source of godliness. He is that source where we are robed in Christ's righteousness, where he's removed our sins and credited to our account as his righteousness. He fills us with his spirit. Godliness doesn't come from our hands and what we try to do on our own. It comes to us by God's grace through the work of his son, empowered by his spirit, and we become more like him. Godliness is great gain because godliness is found in Christ Jesus. Godliness is great gain. I love it. In 1 Timothy 4.8, we've looked at this. He says, I remind you that physical training, that worldly bodily training is of some value. Take care of yourself. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Quit eating all those carbs. Uh, Go to the gym every once in a while. Okay, I hear you, Lord. Um, It is of some value. Take care of yourself. But he says this. But godliness holds value for all things. It holds promise for the present life. It's important today. And it holds hope for tomorrow, the life to come. The gain of godliness. We gain. Here are these hawksters saying that we want to use religion to make a gain financially. And Paul is telling Timothy, godliness is gain. You get Jesus. And then there's this source of contentment. And the source of contentment that's so elusive for you and me, you know what it was in their day? You know what their Greek philosophers told them, the Stoics? They said, if you want to be content, it's self-sufficiency. If you really want to be content, you've got to get separated from your circumstances. 
And the only way that you're separated from your circumstances is if you're self-sufficient. If you could have, no matter what happens in life, if you could be okay, if you could provide for you, if you could make sure that you are all right, it doesn't matter what's happening in the world. If you are self-sufficient, you can be content. That is what the Greek philosophers of the day were telling them. But Christianity is completely opposite and different. Christianity believes that contentment comes from not self-sufficiency, watch this, Christ-sufficiency. That Christ is enough. Paul will write these words in Philippians 4, 12 and 13. I know that many of you know 13. We're going to get there. Here's what 12 says. Paul says, I know how to be brought low. I know what it's like to have nothing. I know how to have a lot, how to abound. In any and every circumstances, whether my bank account is empty or, man, it's doing great, whether my 401k is really hitting it or I am not getting anything, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here's what he says. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I love Tim Tebow. He is an incredible godly man. I look up to him. Uh, you know, what, what a leader, what a football player. Had a little bit of better arm, what an NFL career he would have had. But, you know, he, he, he put on the, uh, the, the uh, Philippians 4.13, which I admire him for. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, including playing football. But we've got to get the context of that verse. And I'm not ripping on Tim because he was honoring his Savior. But I'm telling you what, what, what that set, sense says, what, what's going on there is Paul's saying, listen, I, I found a secret. I found a secret of contentment that's so elusive. And you know what? I have had a lot, and I found out that I could be content with a lot. I've had a little bit. You know what? I found out I could be content with that, too. Why? Because you know what? I can do all things through Christ. I have a treasure that no one can touch. I have a richness. I have an adoption. I have a love. I have a relationship with the Father. I have a guaranteed inheritance. I got a home that I'm going to. I'm walking with the Spirit. I'm forgiven. I'm free. I'm loved. I'm His. And I'm content. Give me more Jesus. It says that we are born and die naked. We come into the world the way we're going out. You can't take anything with you. I love what one of the commentators says. Travel light. I don't know about you, but for me, traveling light is so awesome. Nowadays, with every you fly somewhere, you got to pay for your seat, you got to pay for your bag. Pretty soon, you're going to charge you for the oxygen on the plane, right? You know, the nickel and dime in the crud out of you. And I don't know about you, but the older I get, the lighter I want to travel. I just want to have nothing. Travel light. Isn't there freedom from all that baggage you're trying to get through, all the security and everything, and trying to, man, I sure hope there's space up there for all the junk I want to throw up there. Travel light through life. You know, a godliness with contentment is great gain. The scripture doesn't say that you shouldn't be rich. It says if you are, you shouldn't pursue it. Enjoy what God has given you, but travel light. Hold on to it loosely. Godliness with contentment. We bring nothing in. We take nothing with us. <laughs> At one funeral, uh, someone said of a rich man, hey, what did he leave behind? What was left behind? And the pastor rightly said everything. He left it all. Maybe he didn't get it, but he left it all. He didn't take anything with him. It's all gone. But what he's also saying, say, listen, be content. Why? Because God will provide for you food and clothing. Interesting Greek word, clothing. It means covering. Probably includes a house. More than just clothes. God's going to cover you. 
God's going to provide for you. He knows. And it might be the last minute, and it may not mean as much as you want, but God is going to provide for you. Have you experienced that to be true? Have you just not experienced that, that when, when you just don't know how, but he just shows up? I remember when Katie and I were first married, and we had, we had no credit. I was 21. She was 23. And every place we went, we went from, and we lived in New Jersey. So we went into the promised land. And uh, we, every, everything we had to do was like, they, like, hey, can you turn on our power? Yeah. Hey, you got no credit. Can you give us some money? What for? Yeah, I have a deposit. Hey, can you turn on this? Well, yeah, well, you got to give us a deposit. I mean, we were giving out deposits, and, and I got paid once a month from a very big company. And so I started on June 1st. I didn't get paid until August. My wife was a Christian school teacher, and if you don't mind me sharing how much you made your first year teaching in a Christian school, she made a whopping $11,000, but it didn't start until September. So that first summer, it was pretty darn lean. You know, we didn't have anything, right? And uh, we, we had on our couch a pillow that my mom's heart friends, I wish Joan was here, uh, gave to us, and they, they had a little compartment in their pillow, and they threw money in it. And Katie, do you remember who was the one who actually had the pillow? Was it you or me? Do you remember? You had the pillow? So she, she took the pillow, she looked in, and she goes, oh, I'm like, whatever. You know that I spent that the day we got it. She's like, no, whatever. She's pulled out, I mean, it was just like, it was like, woo-hoo-hoo. We got some money. I mean, it was, uh, it was amazing. And I, I, I wasn't planning on telling you that stupid little story, but I guarantee you got stories like that too. God's going to provide for you. He's going to show up. And maybe you don't get your speedboat, Henry, but, you know, he will take care of his own. All right, I got to close this up. So let's talk a little bit about the evil root of the love of money. Now, remember, it's the love of money. It's not money. And it is not the root of all evil. It is a root. I like the way the ESV translates this. It's, it's a way of evil. Okay? Pride is probably more the way of all evil. <laughs> um, but anyway, remember, you fall into a temptation and trap if you have a love for money. It's a temptation. It's a trap. It's, a, it's an allure. Come over this way. I love what Solomon would write in Ecclesiastes 5.10. Listen to these words. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Is that not perfect? You love money, it's not going to satisfy you. You want to pursue it, it's not going to be enough. Nor he who loves wealth and his income, that's also vanity. You love money, you're pursuing after money, guess what? It won't satisfy you. Money's a drug. It leads to an addiction. Money captures our hearts, but watch this. Money will never liberate our hearts. It captures our heart, but it'll never liberate our hearts. Money will fall into temptation to trap, fall into foolish and harmful desires. Avarice produces harmful desires, longing for more. It plunges us into ruin and destruction. Ruin in this life, destruction for the life to come. We wander from the faith. As Jesus would say in Luke 16, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What are you pursuing? Money will pierce you with many griefs. The love of money. How is it with you? Are you learning and living the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know who the person of Christ is? Do you believe him to be Lord? Or is he a lunatic and liar? How about the work of Christ? Are you resting in the work of Christ that his life, death, and resurrection for you is enough? Or are you trying to make it on your own or looking for another way? How is it with you? Do you have a passionate pursuit of godliness? Or are you pursuing this world? 
Can you identify false teachers in strange doctrine? Can you know what things are divisive in those teachings that is unifying? Are you really pursuing godliness? Do you know that godliness leads to great gain? Are you content? Let's look at that. Are you content? Where are you? I know it's elusive. It's elusive for all of us. Moi aussi. Have you found the secret of contentment in Christ Jesus? That's where it is. Are you a lover of money? Are you a lover of God? The book of Ecclesiastes says that God put eternity in our hearts. I love that. It's one little verse. It helps me understand the life. God put eternity in our hearts. Guess what fills eternity? Enough money, enough sex, enough power, enough of the world. What good is it to gain the whole world and lose your very soul? You know what the only thing that fills that hole in your heart? It's a gospel plug. It's the good news of the gospel. It's what Augustine will say. Listen, your heart's forever going to wander until you find your rest with God. And he willingly gives us himself to fill that hole, to give us life and meaning. And to say that we could say with Paul, you know what? Godliness in Christ Jesus, that mystery is mine. And man, what he's given to me, I've got such gain. Let me learn the secret of being content. Amen? Let's pray. And Father God, we thank you for navigating us through this passage, this deep water. Uh, Father God, and I guarantee that every, everyone who heard this message, preacher included, there are points of this where like, oh, man, did I blow it here. Oh, man, am I like pursuing the wrong things here. God, part of your grace to us is to point out where we aren't pursuing the sound words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, where we are listening to the world. God, part of your grace to us is letting us see our lives and to see what are we chasing after? What are we doing? God, for your glory and for our good, would you help us? God, would you, would you remind us the mystery of godliness, that Jesus is enough? God, would you, would you help us pursue godliness more than any other pursuit? God, would you remind us the secret of contentment like Paul knew, that we truly can be content with a lot or a little because we got Jesus. God, would you grow us? And God, the last thing I'm going to pray for for King's Chapel is that, Lord, we would be a church that's just really tuned in to false teaching, to false teachers, that God, that we would know and see wolves that look like sheep, but they're not really sheep, and they're not yours, and that God, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.